tell me about new and improved me back to school special. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't see that coming, did you? (laughs) I did not see that coming. Oh, I see. I okay. I see what we're doing. I see. (laughs) I see how we getting the party started. Hi, girls. Can I help you with anything today? Yeah, we were looking for some dresses more like, well, you'd wear to a party. Okay, um, let's see. Oh, I have got the perfect dress for you here in the junior department. And, um, I think we can find something in your size over there in the girl department. Um, come with me. Oh my gosh. The new improved me. You know, I went to camp at this place called French Woods um, in Hancock, New York. You ever heard of Hancock, New York? I think so. Yeah, maybe. I'd never heard of it before, you know, being from the Bronx and and I knew the five boroughs and I knew some of the outer, I knew Albany, I knew the capital, but I never heard of Hancock. A wonderful Broadway dancer, actor, uh, who my mom dressed actually she was actually one of the first three black dressers on broadway that's a whole nother story mm-hmm. but um he was in the tap dance kid and uh some other things his name was my his name is uh michael blevins and he told my mother about this camp up in hancock new york called french woods and it was uh it is actually it's still around um it's a performing arts camp but it's nothing like any camp I've ever seen. I mean, we're talking state of the art sound engineering and theaters and yeah, it was, it was crazy. And so I went for two summers, but I think it was my second summer there. I got scouted by an agent. Oh wow! Um, Yeah. Like online waiting to get some chicken nuggets or whatever. I was online with my, on the, the lunch line with my tray and, uh, she approached me. She said, I, I, I'm, an, I'm a manager, I think. She said, I'm a talent manager, scout. I can't remember the exact thing that she said, but mm. she gave me a business card and said, when you get back to the city, you know, give me a call. Have your mother give me a call. And um, obviously, no cell phones, you know, back then. So right. <laughs> I went to the pay phone call. <laughs> This is real. This is a real Gen X story. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I went and called my mother, and I I told her about the woman, and I was so excited. I tucked the little uh, business card away. I kept it safe my whole time at the camp, and I brought it back to Brooklyn. I was living in Brooklyn at the time, and my mother and I went up to see her. She had an office in the Ed Sullivan Building, big fancy. Sh- I said, "Oh, she's like a an agent, agent." <laughs> And one of the, uh, she started immediately sending me out for work. She got me some headshots. Um, well, I, you know, we had to pay for them, but, you know, she hooked me up with a great photographer, got some headshots going, and they started sending me out on auditions. And the new improved me <laughs> was um, one of those sort of after school uh, sex education coming of age uh story. So it was almost like a soap mm. opera, but for teens. And I I booked it. I remember the day of the audition, my stepdad took me to Junior's for lunch. 
That was when juniors had good food. I wouldn't I wouldn't advise eating there now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know the feeling. Man, what happened? What happened? But yeah, he took me on that audition and and I got the gig and we filmed some in some incredibly beautiful house upstate and I was the I played uh the flat-chested girl. So that was yeah. Now, was that the character's name? <laughs> Because <laughs> I have a problem with that. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. No, you know, the name is even funnier. Her name was Karen. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but I played the girl who had not quite uh, begun her journey into womanhood on any level. Um, right. And her best friend was starting to... Uh, develop and mature and her friend circle was changing and Karen was feeling a little lost and mm. very, very babyish. And so I think overall it was a, it was a really, uh, it was a, it was, it was a nice thing to do. I think it was, it was cool. I remember when you posted that on uh, Instagram and um, you know, like I, I have a couple of friends who, who have done things like that when they were kids, but it's always dope to see, uh, you know, even at that stage, knowing you now versus seeing you back then, you don't look any different either. That's what's crazy because <laughs> it looked weird. I was like, is this AI? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, one of the main reasons beyond all the other stuff we're going to talk about um, why I wanted to interview you is because of, um, you know, your history with being a creative person. Now, let me ask you this. What was the earliest memory for you of you doing something creative that may have led you to that point? Oh, wow. Wow, that's an excellent question. I, I don't, I'm not sure of my earliest recollection, but mm -hmm. the, the elders in my family, their earliest recollection is about one and a half, where um, they were playing a Ray Charles record and I was about a year and a half old, and I sang and performed this song in the middle of the living room. And <laughs> <laughs> apparently it was so resonant that it, it brought my grandmother to tears. But um, Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think I've, I've always been a bit of a ham, um, mm. it, but also, oh, just, just deeply painfully shy at the same time so I feel like I have these sort of two sides I'm in I feel like I'm an extroverted introvert <laughs> yes yeah. I know the feeling do you really absolutely I mean um I I, I didn't star in any after school specials <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, I tended to be quiet for the most mm -hmm. part because you know I'm observant even now, you know, I'd like to think about things and see things before I decide to move or whatever. But I'm also the person when in the house, they like, you know, we having a party in the, in the projects, y'all. I, I didn't grow up in the suburbs. I lived there now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in the projects, when you had a party, uh, shout out to my university in Queensbridge. The shout minute out. they say dollar dance, well... I'm not pretty. I'm not shy about trying to get that money for that dance. I know, <laughs> you know that's right. 
Um, I know that's right. And and I mean, you can't be shy and MC, can you? Or how does that work? In in a lot of ways, I mean, like you said, it's I think it's a confidence thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, quiet or or shy. Shy is to me human, right? Just like fear. You know, we all should have it. It's just how you utilize it. And I think a lot of times um, people like yourself, you're shy to a point. Doesn't mean you won't do, right? Or Mm -hmm. stand out there with the best of them. But um, I don't know, you have purpose with your shyness. (laughs) You know, when it's (laughs) it's time to react, you react. Yeah, yeah. That's the the thing, right? Like, yeah, I actually shouldn't have even said that because I think about... Um, a lot of performers, whether it's musicians or actors, that I can think of that are known to be very quiet, shy, observant, as you said. Right. But when it's time to, when those lights come on, it's it's, it's time to go to work. Best mm-hmm. example, Michael Jackson, right? Come on. Coming around all soft and, oh, thank you, thank you. But then he <laughs> danced like this is his place. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Is that the same dude? Right. <laughs> exactly. Prime example. What was it like growing up in your household? I know you mentioned some things about your mother, and I'm pretty sure a lot of those, uh, I'm pretty sure there were influences um, early on. Yeah, I grew up in the South Bronx. Uh, the first apartment that we lived in was on Morris Avenue. I'm trying to remember, I can't remember the exact address, but, and then we moved to uh, the Concourse in 165th Street. And it was the South Bronx, but it was not at the same time. We lived in this sort of, uh, it looked like the, the, the Jefferson's building or something. You know, it had mm. a drive, had a drive, uh, a drive uh, what do you call it? A driveway? Look, I can't even, I'm like, what do you call, what you call them things, son? What like you, when the car, you drive your car up in them? you drive your car up, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's how New York I am. But uh, yeah, driveway, had a garage, had a cleaners in the lobby, had a doorman. And so it was it was it was an incredible little oasis in the middle of the South Bronx. Um, You know, you because it was just that little piece of block where there was this sort of George and Wheezy vibe. But then, you know, you know, the Grand Union supermarket, you go down the hill this way or up the hill that way, you know, you're definitely still in the Bronx, which was great. I think having that balance was really cool. But growing up in the Bronx, especially those years, I mean, that's when my mother was uh, dressing on Broadway. And so you never knew. Can I cuss? Sure. Oh, okay. You never knew what the fuck you was going to wake up to. (laughs) I mean, you know, like, you know, I wake up in, in ecstasy from Houdini's chilling in the in the living room. Wow. Or, you know, uh, Sam Wright, a wonderful actor, uh, Barbara Montgomery, who was on the sitcom Amen. Uh, um, oh, my gosh. I, I Just so many people. Uh, I, I Just so many musicians and artists and actors and dancers, they would just come to the house and chill. And, you know, I'm sure they were, they were, uh, having a lot of fun, which is why we had to be in the room going to bed. But, um, right. You know, <laughs> it, it, this is the eighties. It's the eighties, um, y'all. It's the eighties. So. <laughs> but 
I loved the fact that during the day there was this beautiful, peaceful, quiet, aesthetically pleasing apartment and with a den that they had sort of, my mother and stepdad had sort of converted into a listening room and, you know, any amazing records, whether it's Prince or Sonny Rollins or Lena Horne or the Jacksons or Marvin Gaye would be playing during the day. And like I said, very serene, lots of natural light. It just had a vibe. And then at night, you know, they'd turn up and I'd, I'd always find an excuse to come out and use the bathroom so that I could see <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> who was, I remember one time, you know, like, oh yeah, Dawn Lewis, she actually stayed with us for a little while mm-hmm. um, from a different world uh, and so many other things. Wonderful Broadway and television actor and Desiree Coleman. I mean, the more I think about it, it was just, uh, I think she married uh, Mark Jackson from the Knicks. She was a great singer and actor in her own right. There was just always somebody at the crib. Mm. And it it was so dope because it wasn't it, it wasn't a thing where, oh, this super famous person is at the house and that's the point. Um to it was almost the opposite. It was watching artists get their hair done. My mother was a hairdresser as well, so she'd do their hair or they'd be eating hagen dazs and 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 chit and chit chatting and shooting the breeze and stuff like that. It was just it was just a very artsy communal few years. Um and to grow up and have that foundationally was was an incredible blessing because it really it really set the tone very early on that home was a place that was supposed to be filled with art and that um that stayed with me for the you know that stayed with me till today kind of get that from you know what you've described right it's it's this kind of incubator for for your uh development growth in arts and all the things you've done it's one thing to have an environment where you have all these different people and it's not necessarily about Fame is, you know, you are fully aware of what they do, mm-hmm. uh, but you're kind of absorbing from every, I mean, I guess from every facet of art, you're kind mm-hmm. of absorbing this culture that's in your home as opposed to what it could be, right? Mm-hmm. I, you know, we've heard some sto- <laughs> some stories about <laughs> some parties where it's like, I don't know who any of these people are and it's getting violent in here, like. Right. Whatever the case may be, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, when did you start to develop a path for yourself at an early age? I think it did start at the camp. I think that was the first time I felt a, a certain level of autonomy as an artist um, because I was miles and miles away from home. And um, I had to develop relationships with people that I didn't know and if I wanted to be in a play, I had to audition. Uh, it wasn't just like, oh, it's camp and everyone can, do, you know, this was more, almost like a specialized high school. It was that kind of rigor. Right. And so, you know, um, you know, you wanted to be in something, you had to audition. Um, you wanted to participate. You had to 
show up on time and nobody was going to tell you when to get up and, and when to know your lines and, and things like that. We had three, we could choose three activities. So maybe you wanted to do ceramics or maybe you wanted to do flying trapeze or woodwork. Um, but then you had your, your major, which was mine was theater. And I think music and I forget the other one, but it was, but you, your major was, you could change up your, your, your other stuff, but your major, you know, you were committed to that. And so, and I was around 12 and 13. It was, it was, it was leading into high school. And so I think that's when I began to take myself seriously, um, Mm -hmm. to see that I could maybe work in this business. Yeah. I was about 12 or 13. Wow, that's that's pretty dope. Cause I, you know, I've talked to a couple of people, and you know, they do different things, right? Filmmaker, uh, graphic designer, or whatever. And everyone kind of has that beginning or those uh, early stories of them being creative in different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for some, they didn't really find their way or their path until much later, right? Uh, mm-hmm. They can draw the line to their creativity and passions now um, in hindsight. But uh, from what you've told me and from what I've witnessed just by, you know, doing a little research, you knew <laughs> your path <laughs> early on, you know, which is dope because not many people, some people think that's the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but everyone's different. And it's all about, you know, how it all plays out in the end. Absolutely. So let me read this for the people listening, uh, because there is a lot here as it comes to uh, Angelica Beaner and her whole creativity and stuff like that. We've been throwing those words around, but <laughs> let me make it clear to y'all. Angelica is an award-winning journalist, DJ, host, and producer. Now, that's a lot. <laughs> because for those who know... That's a lot in itself, right? You keep you you have to be busy, especially when you throw in DJ. Some of those you can blend together, right? Journalists and hosts and producers. You can blend it every now and again. Mm-hmm. But let's just start with the DJ part. Where did that come from? Wow, you know, I think I was a closet DJ uh, long before I actually started calling myself a DJ. And I still hesitate sometimes to call myself a DJ. Um, but, um, because I, I just have such tremendous, uh, respect for the craft, but yes, I am a a DJ, but you know, I used to, I'm sure you've done this as well. Remember on the top eight at eight and you would grab your, your cassette and put the little piece of tissue in the top Mm-hmm. <laughs> and record off the radio. Right, right. But my tapes were like blend tapes. So I don't know. I had this science to it where I could make a tape, a mixtape off the radio. And then later on, using going from CD to cassette. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew how to blend them. Um, I knew how to... Um, you know, match pitches and and keys of songs and what might sound good after this or that. I kind of right. just had a natural inclination for that. And, um, you know, 
I went to high school for voice. I went to be, uh, you know, I studied at the, at the Metropolitan Opera. I was in their children's chorus and then later on in high school. Yeah. So I, I really wanted to sing and, and act and, and, and do theater. And I did some little print work as well. I just wanted to be an all around artsy kid. You know, it didn't matter, you know, what it was. Um, And I think that when I got back from that camp and got that that agent and started um, really being out here, really auditioning and 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 getting work and stuff, and and not getting work too, because that's a huge part of the that's business. That's a part of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I don't think my mother was in a place in her life where she was ready to fully commit to being a stage mom, because that's what it would have required. Right. Um, and so. Unfortunately, um, even though I had this tremendous opportunity and and um, this path, and I, I hadn't even done a whole lot of acting training, and I was still booking stuff. And you know, unfortunately, I just don't think that that was a commitment that she was um, ready for. And I wasn't at an age where I could take the reins myself. And so, I think a big part of what happens to artists or creative people is that you have to recalibrate. You have to figure out what's next, you know? And sometimes Mm -hmm. I do look back on those times with some sadness and a little regret because, I mean, I had it, you know what I mean? I I had it, but it just wasn't that particular, the, the T the film and TV part was, was, you know, stunted. And so I was like, well, what else do I want to do? You know what I mean? I have, I have this, these passions. Um, I'm a creative through and through. I think about creativity and creating something all the time. That's the only thing I think about really. Um, So how do I spin this? And that's where the writing came in. You know, I'd won like a storytelling Mm. contest when I was in fourth grade and stuff. And my grandmother, oh, God rest her soul, just lost her um, uh, last year. But Mm. she was my biggest cheerleader. She was like, yeah, that other stuff is cool. But this writing thing you got going on is like, wow, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I used to get my little feelings hurt because she'd be like, yeah, 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 that's cool. You know, you did that little... Hawaiian punch commercial or whatever it was, but this writing thing, oh yeah, that's, that's it. And it's interesting that that's where I am now. Like you said, you know, you have all these passions as it relates to just being creative. And even though you weren't able to pursue the acting in the way you may have wanted to at the time, uh, you found another way to channel that energy to other Mm -hmm. creative outlets like writing. And I did not know about the singing part. And I'm not going to put you on the spot. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I, I thought about it for a second. And I was like, <laughs> oh, no, you're not getting by without saying that. <laughs> uh, let's talk really quick about your your writing. Now, award-winning journalists. Yeah. Tell yeah. me a little bit about when you decided to take the writing serious in that way and, and how it manifested into a award. Yeah. You know, I, I, I loved to write 
from a child. I loved the actual physical act of the pen moving across the paper. I loved everything about writing, the cursive, the way writing looked, the process of writing, the the tapping into the imagination. I used to write a lot of, um, uh, you know, at that age, you know, sort of fairy tales and, and, and fiction and things like that. And then I recently found a paper that I'd written on Winnie Mandela when I was in the fourth grade. And wow. Right? And Stephen, looking at it now, I'm like, oh, you was, you was always ready to, to, you had smoke. Mm-hmm. You had the smoke for the, for the folk. So um, truly, when I started working in the jazz industry in, on the record side, and just seeing how unfair uh, artists would be treated or how they'd be spoken of behind their backs and things like that, it, it bothered me. Mm-hmm. It bothered me because I come from, this wasn't just work for me. This was personal. You know, I have a, a family full of jazz musicians and um, I, I took it very personal. So the record business probably wasn't for me. <laughs> mm, <right>. because um <laughs> especially at the time it's like when you when you're on that side of it right that's when you start to say oh wow this is kind of shitty right <laughs> right <laughs> you know i was at a crossroads i was like i can't i can't do another day at this label um and it was also so racist and sexist and just really icky and um I knew that, I, and I also was, ha- I was struggling with what I was reading about artists. And I think mm. that there's this very, how, how can I put this? There's this very white way of analyzing black art that says that you have to approach it. And it's under this guise of ethical journalism and all this stuff, but it's also just pretty freaking racist and it oozes with like jealousy, you know? Mm. So, you know, to me, it's like, well, I, I can absolutely listen critically and analytically. Like I'll go toe to toe with, with really any journalist out here who wants to listen to a record from an analytical perspective. We could do that. I could do that with my eyes closed, but I also don't think that it's necessary to talk about people and their art, the way that I was reading at the time, it felt unkind. Um, you know, you don't have to be disingenuous. You don't have to blow smoke. Um, and it's not our jobs as journalists to, um, to just say, to just gush over something. Um, but I also don't think it's our job to go out of our way to be unkind. And in that unkindness, missing so much of the point. So when I started writing, it was really out of a frustration of what I was reading and not seeing enough black women in particular. Right. Um, black people in general, Steve, you know, but really black women writing about this music. So that was kind of my journey. It was like partial, like just my love for writing and a little frustration too. Yeah, I could I could totally dig that. And I'm glad you said that because uh, one of the purposes or the main purpose 
and focus of this particular podcast series that I'm producing um, was just that, but more so in uh, the space of audio, um, which, you know, encompasses radio and podcasting, mainly because though our voices exist in the podcast space, uh, we don't get to learn about one another on this level, right? A, a yes. very deep level that, you know, breaks down who we are and what our inspirations are and what um, what pitfalls we've had to overcome mm-hmm. um, in a very deep way and to create something that people could walk away and have learned something about you and, and what you do um, and your focus, right? And, mm-hmm. and maybe it inspires them to do something. I think what you were doing um, as a journalist is what's needed. It's need You need a balance, right? You're going to have mm-hmm. your critics, right? Uh, you're going to have your, your influencer types when it mm-hmm. comes to their writing um, who may only be focused on I'm me and what I say <laughs> you go with. <laughs> uh, but we need those honest pieces that are about understanding, even if they're not flattering for whoever it's about, at least is honest. So I think that's I, I think that's pretty dope. Now, as a producer, I'm pretty sure the projects you choose to help produce have that same drive, correct? Yes, absolutely. 100%. I have to feel like I have something to offer and I don't want to phone it in. Mm-hmm. I want to really be deeply invested in whatever it is that I'm asked to be a part of. That's first and foremost. Um, I've actually, I've turned down projects that maybe, maybe they will be lucrative and maybe, maybe there will be some, you know, some benefit for sure. Um, but if it doesn't feel right, you know, it, I, I have to, I guess what I'm saying is there's an, there's an emotional investment that has to, that I have to feel inspired to, to make in anything that I, any project that I join for sure. What is, or what are the projects uh, that you're most proud of? I would say one of them is certainly uh, represent, which is one of the more recent projects. Um, It was a a night of jazz and hip hop and spoken word and um, getting to fully direct that and co-produce that um, was, oh my gosh, I I still can't believe it happened. It was, was and and, and you were there. You were there. Yeah, I was in the crowd. Yeah. I mean, I wish, I almost wish I was able to like sit with you and and check it out, you know, um, Mm. because I don't have that vantage, but to, to be able to, to, you know, stage direct Nikki Giovanni. I mean, come on. You know, it's just, yeah. just <laughs> bucket list, basically. You know, oh yeah. I mean, total bucket list stuff. So I would say I'm still riding on a high from from that experience. And also um I think the Weldon Ravine project, um, that would be another one. Because mm. um, I'm all about giving folks their flowers. People who fly under the radar, directed and produced by 
a great brother, uh, Victorious DaCosta. It's about the life and the impact of Weld Intervene. I always tell people Weld Intervene is the artist that you don't know you know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, have you heard a ward tour by Tribe? You, you know Weld Intervene. Have you heard Roy Hargrove do Mr. Queen? You know Weld Intervene. Um, you know, everybody from, from Roy to Funkmaster Flex to uh, the Fatback Band to Marcus Miller, he was, he was one of those artists, uh, I mean, to, to Joe Henderson and Kenny Dorham even, uh, George Cables. There's uh, um, Lenny White, Jamaica Queens, there's this through line, uh, hip and then hip hop, most deaf, New Yorkian poets. There's Weldon was one of these. Um, he was an artist's artist, and he was, uh, you know, he tragically unalived himself in in two thousand two, I believe, uh, not too long after the the um, the World Trade Center. Situation, and he was a deeply feeling cat, deeply, deeply committed to black people, black liberation, black arts. I would go as far as to say he's sort of like the unsung father of a certain faction of um, jazz rock, but just so unsung, criminally unsung. And mm. you know when I had an opportunity to, to work on, on that film. Oh man, it was, it was, there was no arm twisting. I was just like, I'll do it. You know, I'm in, I don't, I don't even know. Does it pay? Doesn't pay whatever it is. I'm, I'm all in because, you know, we owe a great debt to, to Weldon Irvine and many others. And I I think too, you know, my dad being a, a, a sort of unsung, but brilliant jazz musician who never, quite got the 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 shot or the exposure or the notoriety of of a Freddie Hubbard or you know these other mm-hmm. or these cats who deeply deeply respected my father though um right. and so uh, anyone who's made that kind of impact and they're not a household name um I feel like it's our duty to to elevate their their legacy yeah, it's in, it's important to tell those kinds of stories. Um, for myself, like being a big fan of comedy, uh, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, even though he has a little bit more exposure, in a mm-hmm. lot of ways, I feel like that was Paul Mooney. Ooh. You know, like when you think about his work with A Living Color, the Dave Chappelle show, Richard Pryor, mm-hmm. uh, the Richard Pryor show. Um, and, you know, everything he's done himself, uh, when people tend to talk about, you know, top comedians, they really don't mention Paul Mooney. And he's been behind uh, some of those legends that would yeah. be uh, mentioned in the top five or whatever. So I, I see I, I know exactly what you mean when it comes to that. And I, I think it's important, especially now in this space with the digital age and you know, streaming services, and uh, we're not talking to you, Tubi. We're not. We're not talking to you with them. <laughs> with them getaways. Uh, <laughs> we ain't talking to y'all. Not yet, at least. Not yet. Oh my gosh! Uh, but you know what I mean. Like, there's so many opportunities, even for filmmakers, to kind of uh, 
focus in on these types of stories and have them be presented to the world um, mm-hmm. without the, uh, you know, the pitfalls of yesteryear's path in Hollywood uh, where it wouldn't be greenlit for you to do something like this. And, you know, no one would be able to see it. Um, mm. One thing I definitely want to talk about because it's related and I think you you hand out flowers on a regular basis milestones podcast tell me about the inspiration behind that podcast and the story about how it started oh man well well, thank you for that and um just to circle back uh to to the great paul mooney there's um i i have a book um that he wrote i think it's his memoir called black is a new white and i totally forgot about it i'm gonna read i'm gonna read that today I'm going to tell you right now, please do. Uh, I have it. I yeah. read it. I don't get through all my books. Yeah. But that was one I couldn't stop reading because you kind of get more insight into the man behind these things. And there's some things about him I did not mm. know. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. When I read it, we're going we're gonna to have to revisit and talk about it because um, I, I agree with you 100%. I think he's... He's just a, a genius, a, a pure genius. You don't have Chappelle, and like you said, all the people that people put in their top five, you don't have them without Mooney. Mooney was a a man, just a, a genius. Mm-hmm. Um, milestones, yeah. I wanted to do a podcast for a long time, just to break up, uh, because I love to write, but I do not enjoy uh, the deadlines of. <laughs> Of writing, I don't enjoy right, the. Right. Sometimes I don't enjoy the business of writing, and for me, um, writing takes a tremendous amount of um, physical energy. When people read my writing, I'm always flattered when they say, "Man, I just, I it just resonated, or it made me emotional." That makes it worth it because. Usually after I finish writing something, I need two days of just complete downtime. I'm in the bed, I'm wiped um, because it's that much expended. I put my true sweat and tears and energy into the work. And so it's very draining Mm. for me to write. So it takes a lot when people say, oh, can you do this for me? I have to think about, do I literally have the physical stamina to do it? Because it's not just in my head. It's, it's, it's a total body experience. Right. And I wanted a little bit of a break from that. I still write a lot, but I needed a little bit of a break and I wanted to explore other ways of talking about music and kind of like your podcast right now, you know, I'm learning about you as well. And I wouldn't know some of the things you've shared if I was just reading something that you wrote for someone's album. Right. And you know what I mean? So similarly, I wanted people to get to know me a little bit more and how my mind works when it comes to music. So I thought it was a a little bit more personal and people can do other things when you're podcasting versus if you have to sit and read a lengthy essay Um, I'm still a reader. I know there's plenty of readers out there, but um, I thought that this would be a great vehicle for people to hear my speaking voice and to hear what a conversation 
about music would sound like on any given day with some really fantastic people. So we were Mm -hmm. locked down and a lot of people were home and they weren't touring and they had time to sit and talk to me. And I had time to really do it and stop bullshitting and stop putting it off year after right. year. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's kind of how it got started. I mean, there were so many ways it could go like, well, what topic am I going to talk about? Or how, you know, I mean, you'd say music, you could go any direction with that. And so I kind of have, my son has it way more than I do, but I have a little bit of a photographic memory. So I'm always, oh, that, that album came out September 1968 or, I, you know, or liner notes stick out in my brain and things like that. So I said, well, why not do something where we celebrate the anniversaries of albums or people or books or whatever creative thing that they've put out and center the conversation around the album. But um, I'm also talking to this fantastic artist about it. So I, I think too, really quickly, what's cool about the podcast is that, yes, I might be talking to um, Christian McBride, but I'm not talking to Christian McBride about Christian McBride. I'm pulling him in a different direction. And we're talking about something that we just love to geek out on. And so that, that gives the listener another view, very similar to what you're doing now, you know, in talking to me. I, I mean, some of these things that you've asked me, wow, I've, I, I've, I don't know if I've ever really even thought about. And I think that's mm. the point, right? Right. That's exactly the point. And uh, I, I think you do an excellent job uh, with your podcast uh, milestones and, and what you described and as far as like what the goal is, uh, I think is conveyed. Um, and I think it's, I think the choice of, of guests who, you know, may be accustomed to talking about their art, uh, having them geek out about art that inspired them or, or work they just love, mm-hmm. um, gives you, gives the listener a deeper layer to what they do. Right. And, mm-hmm. and who they are. And it's relatable because mm. we all have things we enjoy, you know, music wise or film or whatever. And to um, to hear you and your guests, you know, talk about the Jungle Fever soundtrack in a way that's not completely analytical is refreshing because mm. um, a lot of a lot of, you know, and, and I'm, trust me, I'm not trying to just throw smoke at people, but. I, I watch a lot of podcasts and I listen to a lot of podcasts and, and sometimes they could come across a little too academic. Mm-hmm. And um, to me, what appeals to most people is uh, what you do. So uh, flowers for that, for sure. Oh man. I, I so appreciate that as a nerd and a total geek. I really appreciate that because it's easy for me to go down that other road. Very easy. Like, mm-hmm. you know, on the, the third, me- the third measure of the second verse, when the <laughs> modulation goes from a flat to a, you know, we right, can do right. that, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I, you know, there's a time and place for that. But I think to your point, you can have a conversation that people can relate to across the board without dumbing it down. Right. You don't have to talk underneath people. It's insulting. Um, you can just 
people can meet you where you are in a common space. And then if you want to have that little geek out moment where you step outside that box, that's cool. But you know who really inspired me, Stephen? Who's that? Arsenio Hall. Mm. I, you know, and this is our generation, you know, he was the first, I mean, and Gil Noble, for sure, like it is. Right. But from a pop culture, musical perspective, I guess I would say, um, they would be the two. Arsenio, he had a way about him that people would let their guard down in a way they wouldn't do on Carson or on Letterman or on whatever. And I think part of it was it being a safe space, him being a Black man who loves the culture as much as he does. And, you know, granted, you know, he had a lot of his friends come on the show. You know what I mean? They, <laughs> right, you know, they right. were, you know, of course, you know, Whitney Houston is going to, you know, have a different energy on that show. They're, they're homies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not lost on me um, in terms of some of my guests as well. There's a, sometimes there's a pride, there's history. But even when there's not, I think that people see me as a safe place to land and be themselves. And mm. that is the biggest, that's the biggest honor. And that's what I feel like Arsenio did. You, you, you know, they're going to go on Arsenio and, and talk totally different. It's a totally different vibe. It's almost like they're just in his living room. And I studied him mm. um, a lot. And he's, he's, he's a... Uh, He's an unsung hero out here. I think he had a way of uh, communicating and relating to people in an interview setting that um, was very special. Yeah, you know, I never thought about that, but you're absolutely right. As you talked about it or described Arsenio, um, I do remember that about, look, put it this way. There are a lot of people who conduct interviews where they have to work for that artists or musician or filmmaker or whoever it may be to kind of let down the guard or to get out of interview, quote unquote, interview mode. Yes. Just talk. You know what I'm saying? Now, what would you say is your dream project? Like if you had the opportunity to write something or produce something or even host, what would that dream project be for you? Wow. Well, there's a couple of documentaries that I'd love to do. Hmm. Um, I'm nervous to say on who, because I don't want some. Yeah, don't, <laughs> let them, don't let them steal your shit. Don't <laughs> let them. <laughs> right. I don't want nobody to steal it. Because um, somebody with uh, with more money than I have right now might be like, where? But, right. Um, right. <laughs> um, there are definitely a couple of musician-focused, I'll say that, and in an offline, I can tell you, mm-hmm. uh, documentaries that I'd love to do. And also, I'd love to finish my book. I'm writing a, wow. I'm writing a book. You're writing yeah. a book. I didn't know mm-hmm. that. Obviously, we, <laughs> we don't want to <laughs> let the cat out the bag, but uh, <laughs> do you think at some point you get back to that? Oh yeah. Um I started it I started writing it 
last year. And I'm like 140 pages deep, Stephen. Like I'm mm. like I'm like I'm kind of in there with yeah. it. But um, but I I have to get the second half written. And um, I'm actually very excited about it. So I guess that would be my dream project to see. I love bookstores, all kinds of bookstores. It's a little bit of a a. Uh, hobby fetish? I don't know. But um, even if I'm in a city I've never been to, I want to go to the local bookstore. Like I, I love the architecture and the smell and I just love bookstores. And to see my book in a bookstore or a store window, you know, that would be, that would be amazing. That would be, I think, fulfilling what my grandmother wanted to see for me as well. So it is in part dedicated to her. And I really want to do that. That that's a dream for me, along with a couple of, like I said, a couple of documentaries that I want to do. Well, Angelica Beener, thank you for joining me. It was such a pleasure, Stephen. Anytime. This is an incredible podcast. I mean, this is this is so dope. I I just know that this is going to be really really special, and um, I'm just very very excited for where this is going from one creative to another congratulations thank you angelica beaner is award-winning journalist dj host and producer to find out more about her you can visit the link in the description of this episode my little podcast is produced by yours truly and your host steve ann smith This podcast is available on all podcasting platforms. So subscribe, review, and share it with people you know would enjoy this kind of content. Remember, stay productive and follow your passion. Peace.